Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of Dressed Media. With over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. As many of you know, dress listeners, we recently conducted our very first, but not our last, (laughs) fashion history tour of New York City, and we did that last year in December of 2023, and we could think of no better place to begin that tour than one of its most storied neighborhoods, arguably the beating heart of the city and certainly of American fashion, and of course, I'm speaking about the Garment District or as it was rebranded in the 1970s, the Fashion District. And it's really Fashion Avenue, which is also known as 7th Avenue, that helped to establish New York City as a world fashion center, with many of America's most famous fashion designers and their ateliers calling the street home over the years. And specifically, a very significant building that they called home, which was where we made our very first stop on our tour. I am referring to, of course, 557th Avenue. And this building was built in 1925 by architect and garment manufacturer Louis Adler at a really pivotal period in the development of the garment district as a neighborhood that was built specifically to house the garment trade. And this was after the garment trade had been unceremoniously kicked out of Uptown and off of Fifth Avenue, where the fashion trade had been concentrated for decades surrounding the area's many chic department stores like Bloomingdale's and Bergdorf Goodman. So what exactly happened? So at the dawn of the 20th century, the garment trade was huge. The trade employed almost 50% of the industrial labor force in the entire city of New York. And it was made up predominantly of immigrants, many Eastern European Jews who were particularly skilled in garment production. And it was the sight of this working class apparently flooding the streets of Fifth Avenue every day that threatened to ruin this luxury fashion image that Fifth Avenue's high-end purveyors were trying to cultivate at this time. They really wanted to be on par with Paris's Rue de la Paix. And obviously, this decision is embedded with things like classism, racism, bigotry. Yes. So basically, the Fifth Avenue Association was created to 
deal with this matter. And in July of 1916, they successfully passed a zoning law, the very first of its kind in the U.S., that forced 95% of the garment factories to move out of the neighborhood. So many, many of these factories uh, moved to an area further downtown, set aside explicitly for this purpose. And according to primary sources, this area is located between 5th and 9th Avenues and between 34th and 42nd Streets, an area which quickly became, quote, the fastest growing construction site in the entire city. So 1,500 garment firms and counting by the early 1920s, this area was cited as, quote, a definite center for the trade, also a prosperous, thriving center of garment production and American fashion design. By 1955, arguably the golden age of the garment district, there were 8,500 women's apparel manufacturers alone. And that's not including all of the other clothing trades that fed into making that apparel. So we're talking about dozens of businesses making and selling everything from buttons and other sewing notions to purveyors of fabrics and feathers. And for our intents and purposes this week, those purveyors also include hand fabric pleaters and flower makers, two of whom we get to meet on this week's episodes. I'm not sure that this week's guests, George Collegian and Adam Brand, have ever met, but their businesses sit just a couple blocks apart from each other on 36th Street. Their respective businesses, Tom's Sons International Pleading, affectionately known here in New York City generally as International Pleading, and also M&S Schmalberg represent two of the longest-running and oldest family-owned operations in the garment district, and they also represent two of the very few businesses remaining committed to the highest standards of quality and excellence in their respective fields, not just in New York City, but in the entire world. Both George and Adam graciously invited our recent New York City tours into their premises to get an up-close and intimate look at their process, and we are so pleased to welcome them both to the show this week, starting with George, our guest today. George is the fifth-generation pleader at the helms of Tom Sons International Pleading, which, as the name suggests, is a pleading company of world renown. George, now it's our turn to welcome you. Thank you for joining us on Dressed. George, welcome to Dressed. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you and learn all about your incredible business and that incredible history behind it. And first, I just am hoping you can briefly introduce us to Tom's son's international pleading, starting with who was Tom and who are his sons? Sure. Tom Sons International Pleading is a contracting company located in the Garment Center in New York City. Uh, that basically means we do all kinds of crazy folding for the local garment industry and the industry around the world. Tom was my grandfather, and his sons were my father and his two brothers. So my father's name was Leon, and then there was Jack and Anthony, and the three brothers were all pleaders. Fabulous. And we're going to learn all about that incredible history today, because despite the origins of Tom's sons being dated to 1931, your family's relationship to the textile industry and textile production has an incredibly rich history, spanning five generations of makers, 150 years, and multiple continents. Please introduce us to your great-great-grandfather and what inspired him to enter the world of textiles. My great-great-grandfather, his name was uh, Krikor Tutunjan, and what he did was he would weave damask fabric. And not only did he actually make the textile, but he actually had a mulberry tree nursery 
um, which is what silkworms eat. He would breed the silkworms and his wife and his daughters would actually make the yarn and him and his sons would actually weave the fabric. I really don't know how he got into it. And where is he and in what time period are we talking about? So we're talking the 1800s and we are talking late 1800s and we're talking um, he was in an Armenian village located in Turkey. Um, and that village is called Tikranagerd. So you don't know what comes before, but you do know what happens after because he sends his son, who's your great uncle, I believe, to Lyon, France, to study jacquard card punching, jacquard weaving, and plissé, which I read that in an article is plissé pleating. And what al- what other types of textile manufacturing did they start doing once uh, the son returned from from Lyon? So plissé is pleating, and we would do all kinds of uh, textile manufacturing, uh, mainly brocades, jacquards, and believe it or not, what they specialized for a particular time frame was bathrobes. They would make very high-end, like, towel bathrobes. They would actually do the whole, at one point, they did the whole process where they would give the finished product. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So they were, my family back then was very heavily engineering oriented. You know, they used to maintain the machinery and modify the machinery themselves. And that's the environment that my father actually grew up in amongst multiple factories in the same general vicinity. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about that. Because um, if you move forward in the story, we're talking about your grandparents, right? So your father's parents. What can you tell us about them and how they got into the textile trade? And then what is the significance of the year 1931? My great grandfather started the or did the textiles. Uh, His son went to Lyon. And then his daughter would actually sew. And his daughter is the one who taught my grandmother how to sew. So my grandmother was always sewing. She wasn't necessarily involved really in the textile aspect of it. So my grandfather, he was actually more of um, like a general artisan and an actual architect. He was someone that had a lot of taste. My grandfather was less involved so much as the technicality of how things were made. That was more his sons that were doing that. He was more the general aesthetic of everything. And he was the one who had all of the contacts in that the local region. He was a very well-respected man. Um, he was dre- He would dress very sophisticated. And his wife would do the sewing. So my grandmother Rose was always into sewing. Um, and she used to actually teach sewing to a lot of the younger women there. Before they would get married, they would learn these basic skills. And she would make a lot of clothing for the local women of the time. And when her uncle came back from Lyon, and he said that he had observed this technique called pleating, he explained it to my grandmother. And he said, this is what I saw. This is what they're doing. And so my grandmother, being an incredibly industrious woman, basically started to do it and started to develop the process. And she became very proficient at it. And it became so popular and so desirable that as time went on, they basically phased out of making textiles 
and doing pleading. And so the year 1931 is the year that we identify as when we started as, as a pleader, is that's when the first professionally pleated skirt was pleated and sold by my grandmother. In 1931. And we're still in Armenia, right? No, at this time, we are in 1931. We are in, I believe we're in Lebanon at this time. So there are three basic cities that we went to. So my my grandparents were kind of in between Syria and Lebanon. Syria and Lebanon is, you know, they were bordering countries. So back then it was almost like saying, New York, New Jersey, or New York, Connecticut. So yes, 1931 is the year that she uh, first started pleading and selling it professionally. And the first son that she pulled into the pleading was my father. He was the youngest of the three brothers. And his job in the beginning was just to keep the coals hot enough for the iron. My grandmother had two irons that were coal irons. And my father would basically put the coal in one while she was using another one. And then she would open the door and put the cold iron outside and get the hot one. And this process was secret. My father was not allowed in the room when he was a child. It was such a secret because my grandmother at the time was earning so much money that it was super hush hush. She earned, I believe in one day, my grandmother earned what the average monthly salary was. Wow. Yeah. So keeping this technology a secret has been something that has been very, um, we play this very close to our chest in my family. I think it's because, you know, the time that they were raised, you know, there was a lot of starvation and war and hardships going on. And so this was their lifeline, you know, pleading Mm -hmm. was their lifeline. That is how they survived. Yeah. And all done by hand it should be said. And we'll talk more about the technique here in a little bit. But so you credit 1931 as being the start of this pleading business, family pleading business. But how does it progress throughout the 20th century? Okay, so when my father took over or stepped in and left the textiles, my father has always been an incredibly brilliant engineering type of mind. And he starts developing the process more and more and making it a little bit less handwork and more manufacturing based. They start expanding to the point where it becomes too much for my father. And then the two brothers come in and then they continue to expand until the point where they actually had one of the largest factories in the Middle East. They were producing the entire product, pleated skirts and pleated dresses, and they were distributing the pleating all over the Middle East. On par and in competition with European pleading right at that time, like that level of quality and that level of craftsmanship is going into these pleated garments and textiles. Yes, correct. My my father was obsessed with the perfect pleat. And back then, you know, people had this viewpoint that European goods should be more expensive than Lebanese product or local product. And my father was very against not against it, but he was very pro his country. So he would make a superior product. He would obsess about everything about pleating. My entire family is kind of like pleat crazy, you know. And he really developed an entire technology around pleating because, you know, most people that pleat just pleat. 
there are very few people in this world that actually do the whole process of pleating and garment making in-house. So as a result of seeing this entire process, my father actually developed a tremendous amount. I mean, you know, there are many people that are famous for making pleated garments, but I don't think anyone actually started from actually treating the yarn to weaving the fabric to making the pattern for the garment to sewing it to making the pleating molds and sewing the pleats i don't know of anyone that has actually started from the finished yarn to the finished product other than my father yeah it's absolutely incredible and you have a lot of examples behind you because you're at your workshop and we're going to talk about the patterning and what goes into all of this because i don't think people really know until you see it or talk about it, what a complex and dynamic art form pleading is and can be. First, though, when we came to visit you in New York this past December, you so graciously let us let us come visit with some people from our tour. You had a lot of pieces from your archive, from your family archive. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about some of those pieces from the mid 20th century, um, from your family archive of the 1960s. You also had clippings of the fashion show in Lebanon. Can you talk to us a little bit more about those pieces? Sure. We started making clothing in the, I would say like a ready to wear in like the 60s. My father always was all about expansion. So I do have some skirts here that were pleated by my grandmother in the 60s. In the 70s, my father actually came to New York. And in the, I would say in the early to mid 70s, he was more like scoping out the scene and working for people to, to understand what it would be like to work in America. But in the late 70s, he started making his own clothes. So I still have clothing here that my father made in the 70s. When he came to this country and launched properly, the name of the brand back then was called Pierre Labiche. And so, you know, I've been hunting the internet looking for this clothing that my father made and slowly been buying back pieces that are 40, 50 years old that look just as good as they did that day. Yeah, that was definitely one of the surprises upon visiting was you had pleated garments up and I was like, oh, that's probably like a Mary McFadden from the 70s, 80s, right? Because she's really famous for doing those pleated dresses or an Issey Miyake, right? But it was like, no, this is your father's label, which is, was really, really cool. Yes, my father was a very talented man and he was very clever in the way that he engineered his his garments. You know, my family wasn't as well known as some of those brands that you mentioned, but that doesn't mean that he didn't make it first. <laughs> it's also just about how history is written too, right? Because at the time, we're looking back 30, 40 years, right? right. And so how is history written and how people are remembered right. and what actually happened are different things. And we do a lot of that on dress, which is kind of uncover those hidden or now forgotten or lesser known figures, and kind of restoring them back to their rightful place, right? As fashion history makers, which your family has certainly been instrumental in in creating fashion for over 150 years, it sounds like. Correct. I mean, uh, 
I'm happy that you're saying that because that's kind of one of one of my personal pur- purposes that I have in my life is to get my father the recognition that he so deserves for his accomplishments. I mean, I have hundreds and hundreds of garments, sketches of garments that my father has designed and made in my archives. But technically, anything that could be done with a pleat construction-wise my father pretty much did it way back in the day and many people watched or saw the end product and copied him people that have more contacts more influence in this country have you know copied my father but my father always considered that copying to be the ultimate compliment he used to say if you're being copied then you are somebody Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Thank you. 
I'd love to talk about the pleading process and its history, because obviously you have a really rich family history and you've probably seen through your research how pleading has changed and evolved over time, if it has at all. Um, Can you just talk about maybe what it was like in your great grandfather's day? You talked a little bit about what your grandmother was doing and then how that evolved under your father and into today. When my grandmother used to plead, basically it was all done by hand and it was done how you would imagine it to be done with the use of a lot of pinning, a lot of patience, a lot of accuracy. And, uh, you know, if you're dealing with delicate fabrics, that becomes much more challenging. There were certain tools that they designed to help them with the process, but still it was very labor intensive. I mean, the entire production line was basically my grandmother. And uh, it got to the point where there's just so much that this woman can produce. So the next evolution in that was the use of a mold. Now, a mold is basically a folded piece of cardboard, and it'll have a positive and a negative, and the fabric is sandwiched in between that. And so this enables someone without necessarily that physical dexterity required with their hands and you know, wielding a heavy iron to be able to open a mold, place the fabric inside, close it, and and basically cook the fabric in in an, in a large industrial oven. So that is still how pleating is done today. That is one of the methods done, and that's primarily done when the pleats are not necessarily all parallel to each other. When all of the pleats are completely parallel to each other, that's usually done with a machine. Machines started being developed, I believe, in the late 1800s, and they are still pretty much functioning in the same way that they did. There are newer machines now that are a little bit more reliant on robotics and electronics and stuff. But yeah, that's how pleating is done today with the use of machines and with the use of molds. And the molds are incredible. You have several behind you right now that I'm looking at. And dress listeners, we will post videos, hopefully with permission of George, to show you this process. Because yes, we've all seen straight pleats, but there's also like a core, it's almost like an accordion effect, right? So there's diamond pleats, there's zigzag pleats, stars. Can you talk about this dynamic, creative, creation of these molds because they're really diverse and they're incredibly beautiful. When a pleat gets a little bit, how do you say, crazy, <laughs> we, we, <laughs> we put that under the umbrella of fantasy pleats. So traditionally, when you think of a pleat, you just think of a straight line going all the way up and down. And then there's another one straight next to it. When that actual crease makes some kind of a change in its trajectory, meaning that it's going straight up and then all of a sudden it veers over 60 degrees in one direction and then back to the 60 degrees back in the original direction. These types of scoring, these types of scoring and these pleats in a tessellation can create a wide array of crazy, crazy folds. So it's quite elaborate. When most people look at these folds, they all say the same thing. Wow, I didn't even know that this is a pleat. So yes, I can definitely share with you some pictures of of examples of, of these kinds of crazy pleats. 
And is this something you and your father are developing and creating for specific clients? How do you create these molds and where does the inspiration come from? The way that molds are done is that they are scored by hand and folded by hand. And this is something that obviously I learned how to do from my father. I mean, from a very young age, actually, the first thing that I actually did in helping my father was um, was helping him fold molds. I think I was like six or seven years old when I was helping him. And where might people have seen Tom's son's work without knowing it, right? Because we might know the fashion designer whose labels on the dress, but so often the many artisans hands that go into the creation of that garment aren't credited, right? And of course, Tom's son's work is everywhere from red carpets to museums. Anyone who is high-end manufacturing is our client in this country. We do have some European clients as well. We do do all of the, a lot of work for Dior USA, corporate Dior USA, Oscar de la Renta, Vera Wang, um, Proenza Schooler, Coach, Calvin Klein, Tom Brown, Kate, the row. Anybody who's anybody in American fashion design. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if someone is a high-end brand and they are sending something down the runway, then they pretty much are coming to us. Amazing. Yeah. And I mean, some of our clients will actually do production with us. And some of the projects that we do, uh, we know that it's going to be get sent overseas reluctantly. But, you know, we do help them construct the garment. So our specialty really is that we know how to make the clothing. We know how to make the clothing more than they know how to make the clothing because we've been making our own pleated clothing for generations. Well, and I know that's something that your family really prides itself on, and you kind of spoke to it a little bit earlier, is this complete grasp of how a garment's constructed, right? So as you just spoke to, they might know how to construct a garment, but you know how to construct a garment and also incorporate this incredibly fluid fabric, right? Uh, that's pleated. Correct. So when, you know, there are many laws to making a, a garment, you know, and there are many people that know how to make garments, but there are very few people in the world that know how to make a pleated garment. And unless you are an actual pleater, you kind of can't make patterns for pleating. And there's often a lot of mistakes. So, Yes. One of the things that we're particularly proud of is the fact that we've pretty much made every kind of garment that there could be. We've suffered through uh, the, the challenges of making them. Is there a biggest challenge that you remember in your history that you would share with us? Like, what is the most challenging pleat you've had to make? Okay. There's two. <laughs> <laughs> There's two. One of them was so incredibly simple you would think it's just so simple and basic and it was simple and basic the only thing about it was that it was a 14 foot long pleat okay wow it was 14 feet long it was one eighth of an inch and it was spaced apart a very specific distance and there was a one sixteenth of an inch variance that was permitted Wait, the pleat was one eighth of an inch? The pleat was one eighth of an inch. Oh, wow. And if you were off by more than one sixteenth of an inch, the lines didn't look parallel. Now, 
the longest ruler that you can purchase is basically eight feet. So anything that's longer than that is too flexible and rigid. So to make something that was 14 feet long was incredibly, incredibly stressful. And how long would that process have taken you? So that was a very specific job that we got for a, a commercial building. And it was panels that were being put on the walls. Uh, we had to do like 50 or 60 of these panels. And I think we were working on that project for about a month. Wow. It was quite an intense time. As soon as we delivered the product, as soon I like I got sick <laughs> from the <laughs> I actually was out I was in bed for like a, a week after that. Um so that was one project that was very very challenging. Like I said, it doesn't sound very sexy, but it actually pushed me as a a machinist. It's a very mechanical process. So how do you replicate something so precisely? So that was one project. The other project that I would say that was very, very stressful was we were asked by the Metropolitan Museum to uh, reproduce a Fortuny gown. Wow. Yeah, they were they were doing an exhibit and uh, the Fortuny gowns were falling apart and they didn't want to use their original Fortuny. So they wanted something else that resembled the Fortuny. So when we were, when they approached us, you know, I was speaking very, very confidently about our capabilities and, uh, <laughs> and I insisted that we be allowed to go to the museum to view the, the dresses so that uh, my father could analyze them. And we went and he analyzed them and he, he knew a lot about what was, you know, what, what, it, what it was, how it was made, how the fabric was woven, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the challenge with that was, you know, there's a very specific look to a Fortuny. It's very, very tiny. And to get a particular fabric to look like that, it's easier said than done. You know, so um, some fabrics don't necessarily hold pleat so well. They look very loosey-goosey. So to get something that was holding it and had the same sheen and the same scale, et cetera, et cetera, was very, very difficult. And we worked on it for months. And again, this thing totally stressed me out. And uh, we tried all kinds of processes. And every time we would try a different fabric, we would have to start all over again. So we were literally like hundreds and hundreds of trials and then uh, one day i remember my father came into the factory in the morning and that was kind of our thing we would always go to work early in the morning and we would have about an hour before the day started and we would just sit and have coffee and brainstorm and talk about things and uh, explore techniques and he said to me i had a dream last night and i i think i i think i figured something out we can try today and i was so relieved because I was panicking because the deadline had gotten closer. They were calling, asking how it's coming. And I'm freaking out because here I am saying how good we are. And, you know, I like, I can't, I can't pull it off. So we tried it that day and it totally created the effect we wanted. And basically that was the Rosetta stone or whatever it was. That was like the needle in the haystack, the, piece of, the little <laughs> technique that we needed to do. And we did that and it worked out and the and the museum was totally blown away by what we did i mean we got a letter from the costume institute you know thanking us for how amazing uh, the garment looked 
Well, yeah, I mean, Fortuny, as many of our listeners will know, although we have not yet done a Fortuny episode, which is a shame, but <laughs> that is one of the most famously closely guarded secrets is the Fortuny pleading method. Then, I mean, it was patented, I believe, by Mariano and his wife, Henrietta, and then and then still today, I feel like it's still like a closely guarded secret. So the fact that you cracked the code is pretty, yeah, is pretty special. And also, again, speaks to, of course, your 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 abilities <laughs> as the premier pleaders. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it was definitely not easy. And, you know, if you looked at it with a magnifying glass and you compared the two, you definitely would see that it was different. But the point is that in the museum sitting there, people were walking by it and thinking that it was a Fortuny. Uh, and it was actually, it was next to some Fortunies. There were some Fortunies there. Um, and no one could no one could tell the difference. Yeah. Are we allowed to say what exhibition this was for? There was two of them. One of them was for Liberty of London exhibition. And then several years after that, it was the um, Sandy... Sandy Schreier collection. Yeah. Yes. Sandy and it's Schreier. Under yeah. that Velveteen Fortuny jacket that's in her collection. And you never would have known the difference. Yeah. Well, actually, we made nine of them or seven of them. Wow. So, so there was actually one Fortuny gown there that was actually a Fortuny, and then the other seven or six. Incredible. We, we made them. Incredible. So you've been so generous with your time today and sharing your histories and your stories from your incredible family's business. And I just want to talk to you real quick about being located in New York City's historic garment district for decades now. I think you moved there in the 70s or 80s. I'm not certain. 70s. Yeah. So Tom Sons has witnessed that tidal wave of change in the textile and fashion industry. So I'm just wondering if you can kind of tell us what the current state of the pleading craft is today? And what does the future hold for Tom Sons and businesses like it? So specifically pleading, or you want to know the garment yeah. industry? Yeah, as a pleading, whole? but the garment industry as a whole, right? Because I mean, we came to visit you as part of our garment district tour, right? So I learned, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about the top of this episode, probably too, just in terms of the history of the garment district and how it used to be this thriving heart and center of American industry. Um, and that's changed over the years, right? And where there might have been other pleaders at one point, and other people supplying the industry, so much of the business has gone overseas, so many of these businesses have closed. So it's really remarkable to talk to people like you. And also Adam Brand at m Schmalberg, these really like multi generational family businesses that are still there and still operating much as their, you know, founders did celebrating this hand craftsmanship and this family legacy. So I'm just wondering if you can kind of tell me a little bit about the current state of the industry. Um, and it can be pleading specific, uh, and then kind of what the future looks like for you. Okay, so back when I was a child, there was, yes, a tremendous amount of hustle and bustle. And there was probably I'm gonna guess, anywhere between 50, maybe even more pleaders locally. There was a tremendous amount. I mean, 8th Avenue was full of hand trucks going back and forth. There was semi trucks on all of the streets loading and unloading garments. And every building was pretty much a factory. Now, today, it is holding on by a thread. And uh, most of the pleaders, yes, have closed. And that's because most of the pleaders actually 
were just doing volume like mm. they just were you want an a you want this kind of pleading boom we'll do it for you and it was thousands of units and they're gone i mean i don't know how many pleaders are left there's a handful left maybe two or three of them left but every few months we find out about another one that actually closes and that's because most of them again are dealing with volume and there is no more volume happening in america the reason why we have been able to actually succeed um and survive is basically because you know we are not really a volume house we are a couture house and no matter how much work is being sent overseas nobody will ever be able to come close to what we can deliver i mean i i definitely feel that you know i feel blessed to have had a father who had the skill set that he did and have been able to uh, innovate this field as much as he did and that he was able to give that to me as far as the future of our company the future of our company is going to be us returning to our original roots which is to start making our own product right now we try and assume as much responsibility as we can for our pleating but you know once the garment is pleated and it's passed on to the next person we can suggest how they should finish it but we can't necessarily enforce it and some people don't really allow us to cut the garments or the pleating uh beforehand so there's a certain amount of control that we don't have so that was something that was very particularly important to my father which was that we had complete control over the garment from start to finish and that he felt that it was our responsibility that the garment lasted you know that the person it was it didn't matter that we made we sold 50 skirts for example to Macy's or or Bloomingdale's it doesn't that's not important what's important is that the garment actually sold and it was worn by someone and it lasted so that would be our future is basically us relaunching um our family brand and me basically remaking clothing the way that my father wanted it to be made in the particular construction techniques and quality standards that he wanted i mean he was super obsessed with how a pleat needed to be cut how a pleat needed to be sewn how a pleat needed to be hung how a pleat needed to be i mean he was very very <laughs> he was very very he was a quite a, quite an interesting guy sometimes people would ask us there there would be very famous designers that i don't want to say their name but they one time wanted to sew loops into the skirt so that they could hang the skirt with the loops and my father basically refused to do it and he turned away <laughs> the production and he's like he was like what are you talking he's like you're going to destroy my pleats that was his answer he's like i'm not i won't do that he's like if you want to sew the loops in after he's like that's i can't control you but i will not i will not do it it's against my principle <laughs> Yeah, because again, you're really valuing that craftsmanship, right? This is an art totally. form. This is your father's art in so many ways. 
and totally. and it needs to be valued as that. And that's very exciting news to hear that you're going to be producing, returning to your roots and producing clothing, and we will all be following along. So please, please keep us posted. Definitely. I definitely will. Well, thank you so much, George. Where can our listeners learn more about Tom's Sons and how can they support you? So you can go to our website, which is www.internationalpleading.com, or they can follow us on Instagram, which is at internationalpleading.com. And they can support us by following us, staying tuned, and basically spreading the word about us that, you know, there is a small fabric company in Manhattan that is trying to preserve this legacy in in Manhattan, even though, uh, you know, all the stakes are kind of against us. April, you saw the Sandy Schreier exhibit in Pursuit of Fashion at the Met. And of course, dress listeners may remember she was actually a guest on the show a couple years ago. April, did you have any idea that many of the Fortuny dresses were recreations when you saw the show? I had no idea. (laughs) And I was stunned when he said that. And I just kind of looked around the room because I think that there were a couple other people who knew exactly like what dresses that that he was referring to. And I was we were all like, whoa, that's amazing. So true talent there. Exactly. And the level of skill and precision that goes into this work is incredibly remarkable. I cannot wait to share it with you all on Instagram dress listeners. I expect many audible gasps, even if I myself will not hear it. (laughs) (laughs) And you're going to find those images and reels accompanying this episode on our Instagram at dress underscore podcast uh, with the hashtag dress 341. That's dressed in the episode number 341. As always, we love hearing from you. So if you would like to DM us on Instagram, or send us an email. You can do that at hello at dressedhistory.com. And also please head over to our website, which is of course dressedhistory.com to learn all about our newly launched Dress the School of Fashion. You can take Yay. classes with us. <laughs> um, Cass's <laughs> class, What Women Wore to the Revolution, is already underway. And my class series, The Great Designers, is now open for registration for part one of that class, which is going to start on April 6th. You know, so many of us are familiar with the billion-dollar behemoth fashion empires of Balenciaga, Balmain, Scaparelli, Dior, etc., but it's really easy to forget that they were people first. So this class series that I'm going to be doing on The Great Designers is going to be done in two parts. Ultimately, it will be eight weeks, eight sessions, eight one-hour sessions, and I'm going to introduce you to many of the designers, both well and lesser known, who were operating within the Euro-American fashion system. Um, You know, these are the designers who have really shaped our understanding of fashion, both literally and figuratively. You're going to learn all about their personal lives, as well as how to visually identify the signature elements of their work and kind of what sets them apart from other fashion designers working during the era. So you can head over to our website, dresshistory.com, or you can also click on the link in our bio to sign up. And also, too, you can also find registration for my Fashion History Fridays at the Metropolitan Museum of Art on our website as well now. Um, On select Friday evenings, I'm going to be leading private tours of the museum's permanent collection to learn all about 10 of the most stylish works on view. And as someone who got to take this tour recently, I cannot say enough wonderful things about it. And you should mention, April, that you are open if people want to book private tours with you at separate dates and times that they can just reach out to you directly to do that as well. Yeah, you can just send us an email at hello at dressedhistory.com and I'm happy to chat with you about that. 
And just listeners, while you are on our website, you can also sign up to be the first to know about our very soon to be announced fashion history tours of Paris coming this fall. It's going to be launched in late September, early October. And we had to push the time. Usually we're there more in the summer months, but we had to push because the Olympics are in Paris this upcoming summer. So that does it for us today, dress listeners. Until next time, may you consider the art, heart, and history sewn or pleated into the clothing residing in your closet next time you get dressed. As always, thank you so much for your continued support. More dress coming your way on Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of Dressed Media.